So 12 different traits, integrity, honesty, humility, loyalty, respect, authenticity, generosity, courage, perseverance, self-control, forgiveness, and then we finished up with faithfulness. So these pieces that make us whole. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to, we're going to look at how what makes us whole, all of these pieces put together, is the character of Christ. Because basically what's happened every week is we've taken these traits and the whole conversation has been about how uh, Jesus exemplifies each of these traits or how uh, God through the Old Testament or whatever the case may be exemplifies these traits. And so therefore the fullness of them is the character of Christ. And what we want to do is before we move on to something else, you want to have a conversation about practical application of all these things that we've talked about. How do we understand them, and then how do we make this a part of who we are going forward? See, the problem in our culture is not that we don't value character. The problem is we don't value it enough. When you think about character, it won't take you long to realize that everyone values character. All of us are deeply committed to character on some level. The problem is we're all committed to the character of other people. You see, because we hate poor character in other people because of the, the way it affects us. But rarely do we ever address it in ourselves and here's the thing when you think about the the culture that we live in it's not that character doesn't matter because it does you know on on different levels at least on some level in almost any arena character on some level matters but it's not preeminent you see all you have to do really is just look at the sports world, and that'll pretty much uh, explain it for you. See, you, if you win, you can do anything. You can be the most wicked, evil, horrible person in the world so long as you win, and you will be revered by this world. Or if you are beautiful by this world standard, if you are gifted in some way that edifies the secular world. You will be revealed. You can be the most horrific person. You can lack character in every arena of your life. And no one cares. So long as you supply us or serve us with your giftedness. And the overriding sort of what, what dominates our culture is this principle. Character sacrificed on the altar of achievement. You know, it, it matters. But if you achieve, that matters much more. In what it, and so if, if, if whatever the arena is, you see, all achievement isn't universally uh, praised. So all you have to do is just, you can think of any scenario, in, you know, that you want to. 
if something is prized by our culture, then everyone who is gifted in that thing is, is elevated above character in every way. It just doesn't matter. And so if you're good at something, I mean, listen, I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about how crazy this is. There's a football player right now who happens to be a very gifted athlete, and he happens to play quarterback. And he got cut by his team because of all these off-the-field inappropriate things. He, he is currently, almost any day on the sports feed, there's going to be information about him and different teams that, that want to acquire his rights, want him to play for them, so on and so forth. And yet he has right now 17 unresolved sexual assault charges. 17 different women. 17 that are, that are still yet to go to court, still unresolved. And there's teams that want to acquire his rights so that once that's resolved, he can play for them. It's just unbelievable. But, you know, this isn't new news. Now, so what happens is, right, if you think about it, and, and this, I mean, look, it's, it, politics is the same way. Right, being right, is simply defined by progress. If you make progress, you're right. As long as you go forward, you're right. As long as, we, you see, because we, we care about things like advancement. We care about things like responsibility. We care about things like enjoyment. And we care about character. But here's the thing. We care about character less than advancement or responsibility or enjoyment. Those things are always above character. And it's, it's gotten this way in the church. And so really the question when it comes to character is not do you care about character, but do you care about anything else above character? That's the question. Because it is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. It's the most important thing about us. So we're going to look at three things. We'll start with the promise, all right? Just the first two very quickly. So the promise. Here's one example of the promise with regards to character. Again, this is all over the New Testament and the Old Testament. So in Romans 8, now think about what precedes this verse. All things work together for good to those who are love the Lord and called according to his purpose. Then the Bible says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we could spend a lot of time and pull all this apart. And what we would, fi what we would find out about this verse is that ultimately, this, this is God's plan for all of his children. And he ultimately will succeed in this plan, in all of his children, ultimately. Because every saved person is glorified past tense, which means every saved person will go to heaven as a glorified saint. And as a glorified saint, you will 
you will fulfill this promise. But then there's also the promise of sanctification and the fact that in this life, God wants us to be continually moving towards and growing in the character and nature of God. That's essentially what we're talking about, being conformed into the image of His Son. And notice that the Bible says, for those He foreknew. It doesn't say for those He foresaw. It doesn't say for those He forethought. It's for those He foreknew. In other words, the language of the promise is, a, is, is in the context of relationship in the context of intimacy. You see, just like he says to me and you, just like he says to Jeremiah, when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. I knit you together. I intimately knew the details of your life and your future. He knew. And so he foreknew. For those he foreknew, this is not just to foreknow, it's not just to know informationally. So understand, God's not saying, you know, I knew that you were coming down the pipe. I knew that you were in the assembly line. That is not what this is. This is, I knew you before you were even you. I knew you. So, how does this, so, so if this is the promise, then the question that it's sort of, you know, okay, well, well, what now? I mean, how does this work? How do we, how are we conformed into the image? And this is the, the challenge of this conversation because it doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen automatically. You can sit in church. See, a person can sit in church and be relatively uh, new, can be a young Christian, can maybe have only been saved for a couple of years, and can out, their growth can outpace someone who's been sitting in church for decades. So we, we all, we all, this promise of Romans 8, 29 occurs in all of our lives but it also occurs in all of our lives at, at a different rate, at a different pace. We all, we all grow, but we don't all grow equally, and we don't all grow at the same pace. But we all have the exact same potential. Nobody is, no one comes into a relationship with Christ limited compared to someone else. So what I'm saying is, is that none of us have an excuse. You have no excuse. You can't say, well, they grow faster than me because they're smarter than me. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. So what determines the rate at which you are conformed or if you're conformed or how you're conformed is your participation. That's why we need to have this conversation. Because you can, listen, two people can sit side by side and listen to the same sermons and two very drastically different things happen. So you really got to engage with this material, this concept. 
See, the, the key to becoming a person of character is not to behave differently, but to be differently. Now, that's going to take me a while to unpack. Because I want to make sure that when we leave tonight, we really understand this. Because Romans 8.29 is not at all about behavior. It is not at all about behavior modification. It is not at all about external uh, change. It leads to external change, but it, we really have to understand how this goes. So that's the promise. The proof. Now, the, what I mean by the proof is you, you need to have some grid because here's the thing. I already said that we all care about character, but we care about other people's character. So we have to have a five-minute conversation about the proof because the, almost all of us in the room think, I got pretty good character. And I know some people, maybe some people in this room, this character is not as good as mine. I hope they're paying close attention. And so what I want to do is I want to give you, I want to give you some, a, a, a simple tool to understand how character operates in your life. First of all, a definition. So character is the will to do what's right as God defines the right regardless of the cost. It's the will to do what's right as God defines it, regardless of the cost. That is the essence of what character is. But how do we, how do we know how we're doing in our character? What is a barometer? You know, like if, if I wanted to... If I wanted to know how your character is, well, I mean, I could invest a lot of time and get to know you really, spend a lot of time with you. And, but here's the thing, I, that's impossible. I can't do that with everybody. And neither can you. But here's what you can do. You can very quickly start to get a bead on somebody's character in your community group or in your D group or somebody in your family or in your own heart or whatever by just thinking through this very simple process. See, the pulse of a person's character is measured in their relationships. Where character manifests itself, whether it it's makes its presence felt or it makes the lack of its presence felt, is relationally. Character, it, it's the easiest way to spot it. It's the easiest way to be able to instantly hone in on it. So you don't have to, I don't have to know you well at all. I just have to know a little bit about you. I just have to watch you from a distance. And I can start discerning things quickly based on this principle right here. You see, the, the care, you don't say, you know, well, what, how's the character of this person? Because how are you going to answer that question? Here's what you say. How's their marriage? How's their track record with their marriage? What's their, what, how are their friendships? I don't mean who are they friends with right now. I mean, 
How are their friendships? How long have you known them? Have you known them to be consistent in their friendships? Are they consistent in their marriage? Are they consistent? How do they relate to their, the people in their family? How do they relate to their children or their siblings? How do they relate to people in the church? How do they relate to people at their job? How do you relate to people? You can tell everything about a person's character by their relationships. So I, I think of it this way. I mean, I'm, you know, this may seem stupid to you, but this is how... This is my visual that I made up years ago, and I've, I'm sticking with it because it's worked. It's served me well for a long time, and I'm using it. The relationship seesaw. So basically, the way it works is you have character on one side and friction on the other side. And as character goes up, friction goes down. And as friction goes up, character goes down. And it, it, it always works. It always works. You, you notice there's a lot of people who just have a hard time getting along with people. It's because you have poor character. You're constantly... Going from, you know, this relationship to this relationship to this relationship. And I, I don't mean romantically, good gracious. I don't even have to talk about that. It's clearly poor character. I'm talking about just friendship. I'm talking about just affinity uh, group. You're, and, here's, and, and you're constantly changing. And it's never on your... your you don't leave on good terms. And why are you leaving? What's wrong? Think about it. I've been in this church for almost 30 years. 30 years. And there's some of you in this room that have been here longer than me. A couple. I don't change people. There's some of you in this room that I've been friends with for 30 years. I've been married for 30 years. There's a lot of things I do today that I've done for 30 years. It means something. You see, when it, when, it, when it gets uncomfortable or when it gets hard or when it gets difficult, you don't, you don't move on. And it doesn't mean that over the course of those 30 years I haven't been in conflict with people. Lord knows that's not true. Conflict is part of life. But you look at someone's life and you ask yourself, is conflict just a constant presence in their life and and it's interesting that in 30 years i've never had a person not one time 
And believe me, I say this all the time. You could not say anything in my office that hasn't been said before. Every once in a while, somebody, and I go, I can't believe that's the first time I ever heard that. Like, you got to come up with something crazy. Not one time has anybody ever once said, Pastor, I got a problem. And I can't get along with people, and, and everywhere I go, I'm in conflict with people, and, it's, it's, and I'm the problem. Never. It's always everyone else's fault. It's never your fault. And some of you, conflict is the air you breathe. You breathe it. You just breathe it. And so when you... You, have, you can just have random conversations in the hallway with somebody about just anything about your day. You know, somebody says, hey, how you doing today? And you go into this thing about this person at work that you don't like. It's like, you know what I mean? Really? You don't get this? Like you don't see the common denominator here? It's you. And the problem is, and and here's the thing, even because no one ever comes to that conclusion on their own, and then, you know, I tell you. And then the response is always, it's just the way I am. No, it is not. It's not the way you are. You weren't made that way. You don't have any character. That's the problem. People with character can get along with anyone most of the time. Now, not not all the time because some people aren't worth getting along with. But even in those situations, you can handle that with character. And I'm telling you, that seesaw is dead on accurate. Because it's based on this principle from the Scripture. That character always comes out in conduct. It always comes out in conduct. And that's the simple truth from Matthew 7 and Galatians 5 and everywhere else that teaches about uh, the fruit of conduct or the fruit of the Spirit. You see, so if you'll know them by their fruits, men don't gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Even so, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You see, so you'll always see it. You, you'll always see the seesaw. You'll see friction up or you'll see friction down. Because character is what allows, character is what allows us to, like if you say to yourself, if you say, you know, like there's people, maybe, maybe we'll flip it around the other side. What about the people that you know? I know people. I mean, I'm thinking of people right now. They get along with everybody. Everybody, they're high character. That's why. They're high character. A lack of character creates friction between people. Because if you go back and you look at these traits, and you imagine just any of the 12 traits, and you imagine 
a life deficient in one of those traits, immediately you can see how, ooh, ouch. That's, that's not the kind of person you want to be around. That's not the kind of, you, you immediately, even in our mind, we immediately visualize it in the context of relationship because that's where it comes out. Okay, so now we'll get down to the nitty-gritty, the practicality of it, the process, because what we really want to know is what's the process by which God fulfills his promise based on the proof that we just had a conversation about. How does God do that? How does God grow us in the likeness of Christ? How does our uh, character grow? Well, one of the best places to have a conversation about this is John chapter 15. Because it's familiar and it's a great place for us to jump into this. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now the reason why John 15 is such a beautiful place to to look at this is because in John 15, Every facet of it is handled. It's all covered. It's all Jesus deals with all the facets of this conversation. So the principle that we pull out is no matter how hard I try, I can't produce character, the character of Christ in me. That's what we have to understand. I can only allow God's character to flow through me. This is the genius of the vine and the branch analogy, this metaphor that God uses, is so that we can't confuse the main thing that we'd oftentimes confuse. It immediately barricades us from the most common first misstep that tragically sends us off a cliff every time. You cannot... You can't behave your way into character. You can't try harder. You can't produce it. You can't do it. You can't want to bear fruit, try hard, be more committed, get more organized, study harder, do this, do that. It won't work. It won't work. There's only one way. The only way is to abide. The question is, What does that mean? What does that look like? Because when I say that, I know what the vast majority of you are thinking. Like, you know, abide, like stay in it, like live in it. Now, is that helpful? Like, I don't, I I would hesitate to think, how many people do you think could just come up here, get this microphone, and explain abide to us? And yet it's so central to the New Testament But there's a lot of confusion about something that's so central. What does it practically look like? How do you do it? Well, you can see, just like the promise, that abiding, you just move slowly. First of all, you can see how abiding is, it's purely in the context of relationship. It's completely in the context of relationship. There's no such thing as abiding apart from relationship. 
Abiding is not a physical proximity as much as it is as a relational reality. Okay? So abiding is, is in the context of relationship. You can't try harder to produce it. So the best word to, to think when you think of abide is, but it, it's not in and of itself tells you everything, but the best word is to depend. That's really the best word. But the question is, how do we abide? How do we do it? And that's what we want to talk about. And Jesus is going to give us these practical ways. In this text, he handles all the confusion so that we'll know. All right, so let's talk about it. The first thing is we abide in his words. We abide in his words. Now, he says, down in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So, of all the things that he brings up, he brings these two things up. And the first one is my words. So, what does it mean to have his words abiding in you? What does that mean? Like, does that just mean reading the Word? Does that mean memorizing the Word? Like, you know, like really practically, what does that mean? Like, if, if, I'm, if I'm in a D group, does that mean that His Word's going to abide in me? No, it does not. What it means is that we form our identity and our worldview through His words. That's what it means. To abide in them means to depend on them, okay? So I depend on them in two central areas. I depend on His words to define me and to define what I see. Me and what I see. My identity and my worldview are determined by His words. That's what abiding in His words is. So this is not... It's not... Just reading the Bible for personal accomplishment. It's not becoming scholarly about all the meanings of the things in the Bible. That's not what it means. That does not, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with going to seminary. It has nothing to do with how smart you can look in front of other people. You can look like a genius in front of people and have no concept of what it is to abide in His Word. Abiding in His Word is depending on his words to define me and what I see, identity and worldview. So that's what the Bible is getting at, for example, when you see verses like Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, the, the, when you just read that verse... Just think about that verse for a second and say, why does the Bible say things like that? Because you can't eat it. You can't taste it. But look, it's, it's, it's telling us about the internalization. And see, when I eat something, I'm depending on that thing to nourish me, to sustain me. I'm eating that thing so that I can survive. You see? And so I'm internalizing the Word of God and I'm dependent upon it so that when I look in the mirror, what I see looking back at me is defined through that. 
And when I'm trying to figure out what's going on around me, it's defined through what I know. And here's the thing. The beautiful thing about it is, is that it's not, the issue is not how much you know. The issue is how dependent you are on what you do know. So you can, you can be, you could have gotten saved yesterday and all you know is John 3.16. And you can't even quote that, but you just get the idea of it. If you depend fully on that, you're abiding in it. You see, you, you, can, you can begin to, to understand yourself through John 3.16 and what you see just through that right there. Think of all the things that start changing if that one verse of Scripture you're just abiding in. You see? Just that one thing. And so whatever you know, if you abide in it, it that's where... That's where radical things start happening. But what happens is we know things and then we deny them the ability to, uh, to abide in us or for us to abide in them by, the, by the, the things that we choose to do and the way that we choose to live. And we, because this is the thing. The Word of God will not forcefully abide in anyone. This is on you. It's you. You have no one. You, You can't blame anyone. You can't point the finger at anyone. This doesn't have to do with anyone else. This has nothing to do with your spouse. This has nothing to do with your childhood. This has nothing to do with all the challenges you face. This has nothing to do with the things that you've endured that you had nothing to do with. It has nothing to do with the deficiencies you found in yourself. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It has nothing to do with your past. It It has nothing to do with any of those things. Nothing. It's just you. See, this will be the context. It's this conversation that sets the context for, you know, the, the conversation that will be had at the judgment seat of Christ. Most believers who stand before God, and we're not talking about the That's the small minority. The majority of people are the ones who thought they were believers who stand before God. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. But the believers that stand before God, what do you think the wood, hay, and stubble is going to be? The wood, hay, and stubble, all the things that are burned up, all of those things will in some way relate to things that you knew and did nothing with. Things that you knew, and you knew them, but you didn't do anything with them. You knew them, you didn't act on them. You knew them, you didn't abide in them. You knew them, you didn't... You just knew them. That's what's going to burn up. And what do you think all the precious stones are going to be? Those are the things that you knew and that you abided in. Those are the things that you leaned on. Those are going to be the things that you depended on. 
Because, because that's what produced fruit. It's this whole context. What's the whole John 15 about? Fruit. What do you think precious stones are? Fruit. That's what it is. That's what it is. So abide in his word. Number two, abide in his love. And the, this is, these are 50-50. These are 100%, 100%. One's not more important than the other. They're just dead on. It, it's both of them. Jesus lays it out. You got, you know, half the people that struggle with one and half the people that struggle with the other. Or a bunch of people that struggle with both. But it's not, there's no level of importance here. He says in verse 9, as the Father loved me, it's just so amazing. I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, he makes both of these points clear. He repeats them multiple times in John 15. I'm just giving you, you know, one example. So think about this now, about abiding in his love. Again, this is a a life-altering concept when you get a, a hold of it. A branch does not enhance the life of a vine. The branch is sustained by the life of the vine. See, the vine is, you understand? The vine is what the vine is. The whole, con- the whole conversation Jesus, the whole metaphor Jesus is using here about branches are, is, is there's nothing wavering or changing or adjusting or affected by. The vine is consistently the vine. The vine never changes. The branches are where all the variation comes in. You see? So this is the point, the point I made earlier. There's no, there's no variation. Like where this number two goes, the, the, your train goes off the track right here. Because what happens is, because of all this guilt and shame you've heaped up upon yourself, because of all this condemnation you're unbiblically carrying around, because of all these things you've experienced in your past, because of whatever the case may be, then you've, you have then, what happens is when you bring that into the context of this relationship now, you, what you're doing is you're limiting the potential of you as a branch be, because of some other things. You're saying that that. Me as a branch, I can't produce as much fruit as this other branch. That is a lie. That is a lie. A total lie. And what you're using to do that subconsciously, you never say it this way, is a miscalibration or a miscalculation or a misunderstanding about the love of God. That's how you get there. You don't understand how God loves you. Because if you did, you could never get to that end result. See, a Christian or a branch does not grow in the love of God. Do you understand that? The, remember the promise? The promise is, I'm going to grow 
in the likeness of Christ. I'm not going to grow in the love. I will not grow. My Father's love for me cannot grow. It cannot grow. That is impossible. Because the moment I was justified and adopted into his family, the, his love meter for me pegged at 100%. Just like you. It, and it, and it, it has never moved one inch, nor will it ever. It pegged and it stayed there the whole time. Now that's theological. Because God doesn't love you based on you. He loves you based on Jesus. And so his love, see, can God's love for Jesus grow? No. Okay. What did it say? Verse 9. As the Father loves, capital M, me, cannot grow, pegged at 100, cannot move for all of eternity, I also have loved you. Abide in that love. See, that's it. Does it? So, uh-huh. So every branch, every Christian slash branch automatically is connected to same vine. Nobody has like a preeminent spot. You know, it's like the closer you are to the trunk on the vine, the more this you get, the more that. No, it's the same for everyone. All, all the branches connected to the same vine. All the branches have the same potential. All the branches have the... And here's the problem. The problem is, see, here's, here's what we're doing. Do you know what we do in the church? We subconsciously, we grade the branches. When we look around the room, we grade the branches based on what we see. What, but what's insane is, is that the branches are graded on what God sees. It doesn't have anything to do with what we see. You see, you as a branch are graded on what God sees when he looks at you. And the Bible says that if you're saved, when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Which, which eliminates anybody's opportunity to have excuses about the branch. I mean, it will change your life. I'm telling you, it will change your life. See, when we first started talking about this, you could feel it in the room. Like, I mean, it just the the it just sucked the energy out of the room because as soon as I start talking about how we all have the same, you know, and the fact that hey, you don't have any excuses, like, woof. and everyone in the room starts thinking about all the times you've wasted or all the mistakes you've made or all the, isn't it? We just immediately revert to self condemnation instead of. What is the point of this conversation? What is the point of John 15? The point is, in this moment, as you're reading this, as you're understanding this, wherever you are, whatever, it's, it's, this, is, this isn't a conversation about, well, how long has it been? Or how much time have you wasted? It's about right now. What do you do right now? We didn't have this conversation last year, five years ago, 10 years. We're having it now. 
So stop condemning yourself. You're already condemning yourself. See, the, the, listen, it's mind-blowing. The behavior of the branch does not affect its growth. Well-behaved branches don't produce more fruit than other branches. What produces fruit? Abiding. The connection produces the fruit, not the behavior of the connected. It's not a conversation of how are you behaving as a connected branch. It's are you a connected branch? See, this is not, you cannot, you got to have a whole new paradigm. You can't think about this like you've thought about any other thing in the world because nothing else in the world is like this. This is unique to God. We participate with the process of sanctification. Two people sitting next to each other can hear the same sermons. Remember that? See how easy it is? Two people sitting next to each other hear the same sermons and grow at two different rates. And immediately we think, one's a winner, one's a loser. That's what we think. And in a sense, that's kind of true. It is. In a, in a, in a results-oriented external sense, Sure. But what we're missing is what makes the difference between those two people. It's not desire, want to. It's abiding. It's depending. It's leaning on. Identity, worldview in the word, understanding this love that we're talking about. See, to abide in his love, all right, to abide in his love has everything to do with our consciousness of how we're loved. That's what it is. Like if you're like, what does it mean to depend on his love? Okay, because I gave you a perfect way to understand abiding in his word. Now, to abide in his love, what does that mean? Because if I say depend on his love, that's not really helpful. It's consciousness of it is what it is. It's a new consciousness of what it means to be loved by God. What does that look like? What what does that mean? You see, we grow. We grow through the increase of our awareness and appreciation of the magnitude by which we're loved. That's how we grow. That's how we grow in this love. That's what abiding in his love means. Awareness and appreciation of the magnitude. All right? So let's put the pieces together. Okay? Now, a a lot of this, a lot of you are going to think like, yeah, okay. You're going to go, I remember that. You've heard me say these pieces before in so many different contexts. But we're just going to put them all together and go, okay, look, here it is. 
So let's put the pieces together. So first thing we need to do is, my, this is what I think is the best way to start, because you know what I mean? I'm simple. I need simple things. Two questions. Two questions. If I'm going to abide in the love of God and I'm going to abide, I mean, some of you should be able to answer this without me even putting it on the screen. You should already know these questions. Two simple questions. When I need, listen, when I need to abide in the love of God or the word of God, this, I, I say this in my head over and over and over and over. If I'm having a bad day, I am saying this over and over and over in my head, these two questions. Does God love me? Can God fail? You've heard me say this many times before. Does he love me? See, as soon as, as, soon as my circumstances fall apart, the first thing that comes to my mind is, does God love me? Because I know what my flesh is going to do. Like, you know, Whoa, what happened? What am I going to do? It's the end of the world. It's a... But before I let my emotions get tangled up in something, I just go, does God love me? Yep. Can he fail? Nope. Whoo, man, it makes me feel better just saying that. I mean, that is powerful. I just don't think you can spend too much time. I really don't. I don't think you could possibly invest too much time in answering those two questions. Because you know how those two questions are answered? I mean, you can ask them and you can say them, but I mean, there's only one way to know in your heart that those two, answer, those two questions are true. You see, to know that God loves me, I have to abide in it. You know that? That's how I know the answer to that is what I just told you about abiding in it. And do you know how I know God can't fail? Is by abiding in his word. That's where those two questions came from. With those two principles. They're just the, they're just the, 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 the reminders at the, at the, all they do is point me back to abiding in the vine. That's all it does. But here's the thing. Somehow, when my world falls apart, it's not helpful to me to go, well, am I abiding in the vine or having that? You know what I mean? I just, I, that doesn't work for me. I need something simple that just brings me right back to the root of who I am and how I got here. So there's, so you think, well, my goodness, we ought to all just be crushing it. Well, maybe. But not only am I an expert at using these two questions, I'm also an expert on how to get derailed off them. And there's two ways you get derailed. These are how I get derailed. The first one is if I believe God's love depends on my behavior, derailed. So I'm just telling you right now. You better slay that dragon. You better, you better not, don't you sleep until you slay that dragon. You got, you better hunt and chop the head off of everything in your soul that has any legalistic flavor to it whatsoever. You hunt that thing like a daggum 
I'm talking about you hunt it down and you chop the head off of it. Because it will kill you. You will go nowhere if you believe God's love is dependent on your behavior. You will go nowhere. And here's what you know. There's a bunch of you in here. You know that when things go bad for you, you immediately think, why is God punishing me? That's your problem right there. That's your problem right there. You got a major theological problem. See, you think God's like your mama or your daddy or your teacher or your boss or your he's not. That's what you think. Because everyone else in your life loves you contingent on your behavior, but God doesn't. And you've, you've humanized God. And right there is, is catastrophe derailment number one. And the second thing is if I believe God can be wrong. See, if I think God can fail, and, and now here's another one. Look, do you think this is uh, easy? Uh, you think there... Mm, I don't want to hurt your feelings, okay? I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I think this is probably going to hurt your feelings. Every time. You disobey God's word. You believe he can fail. That's the truth. Every time. You believe he can fail. Every time you rationalize in your head that that truth that you know somehow doesn't apply in this situation because it's this and that, and nah, 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 and it's 2022, and nah, you know, and I don't live in a vineyard, or I don't, you know, no, 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 whatever. The, you, you believe God can fail. Look, I'm just telling you where I go derailed. You might have different derailers, but I don't think you do. I feel like I've been walking this a long time. I know how this works. When my train goes off the track, it's one of these two things every single time. Every single time. See, real change begins... Not with me being told what I ought to do for God, but believing what God has done for me. That's where change begins. Isn't it interesting? Like, that sounds so elementary, yet I want you to think about this. So many times when we have a spiritual conversation... What we do is we start talking to each other about what we're doing. And not talking about why we're doing it. How many times have we had this conversation? What you do matters, but why you do it matters way more. But this is what we do. We say, you know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make this change, and I'm going to make that change, or I've been doing this, or I've been making this change, or I've been... 
Verse 10. Now here is this verse is how many people just get tripped up right here. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, you don't need to raise your hands because everybody blinking their eyes affirmed to me that you right there, what you hear is, there it is right there. There's the performance right there. See, if you, if you keep my commandments. So see, Tony, it is behavior. <sighs> Come on now. What does it say? Come on, what does it say? Let's think about it. See, we're not thinking about all the people sitting in all the churches getting spoon-fed heresy. I'm telling you the truth right now. Let's look at it. Is abiding in his in him conditional on keeping his commandments? Is that what that says? That is not at all what that says. See, it does not say that his love is a reward for having kept his commandments. That's not what that says. It says that we remain connected to his love by keeping his commandments. This is what I want you to understand. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is what Satan does to us. He somehow tricks us into believing that what that means is the keeping, like the keeping of his commandments made his love appear. But what the verse says is his love for you is constant. It's already there. The keeping of the commandments just connects you to what's already there. Don't you see that? It's already there. It already exists. It never changes. We just need eyes to see, but we're so bent and we're so twisted because we don't abide in His Word and we don't abide in His love. And so we read a verse like that and we don't understand what it says. You see, when He says, look, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Does that mean if you don't keep His commandments that He doesn't love you? No, it means that you won't abide in the love that he has for you, which is the same whether you keep the commandments or not. So again, for the eight millionth time, believing rightly always precedes behaving rightly. See, behaving does matter. But the thing is, is that it, it, it pales in comparison to believing. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. It's what create, what, when, so our behavior, so, so the thing is, remember where we started this whole thing? The, remember the seesaw, the friction thing? So all I'm doing is I'm examining 
the seesaw in people's lives and determining what the belief is that's creating the behavior. That's all. Friction is an indicator that there's a belief problem. That's what it is. So many people walking around and they're, you know, their Christian life is roll up your sleeves, get to work. Should we work? Of course we should. Should we roll up our sleeves? Of course we should. But why are we doing that? How did we get there? See? What led me to rolling up my sleeves? Is rolling up my sleeves a result of abiding? Or is rolling up my sleeves behaving? Because here's the thing. I can roll up my sleeves on my own. And I can work hard with a bad attitude for the wrong reason. Sure. I can work hard so you'll like me. I can, I can come over to your house and rake up all your leaves so you'll like me, so people think well of me. Behavior now So the whole issue here is fruit. Well, what is fruit? Well, it's the life. See, fruit is the life of the vine pressed out through the branches. The fruit that the branch produces comes completely from the vine is, and is produced by the vine. Almost done. So I want you to think about this. There's not one command in the whole Bible to make fruit. Only to bear it. So how does a branch bear fruit? See, we have these, uh, well, I call them tangerines. What, the, what are them things, Lisa? That Tatum eats satsumas or some kind of, but they're really just tangerines, but whatever. <laughs> Who cares? But anyway, we got this amazing tree that produces all these amazing fruit in my yard, and Tatum loves them. That's her favorite thing in the world to eat. And so we go out there, and we pick them, and, you know, as soon as she sees it, she's like, ooh, 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 and we pick them, and she sits there and eats them, and, I mean, she's just been tearing them up. And every time we go over there, so then Lisa's always giving me the, you know, lowdown on, because what do you think Tony does? Tony goes over there, and I, I make the first mistake we all make spiritually. It's such a spiritual application. I'm looking for the best-looking fruit. Like, I'm teaching you this. I should know better. And Lisa's going, uh-uh-uh-uh. Do not pick the good-looking ones. Pick them saggy ones. Those wrinkly ones. And you pick one of them saggy, wrinkly ones, and them suckers are amazing. But one of them, like, firm, tight, shiny ones, they're sour. 
So you get that old wrinkly one, and, when, and here's how you know the ones that are good, because the, the branch is bearing it. It's hanging down. It's bearing. The branch didn't make that fruit. The branch just bears it. The vine made the fruit. It just bears it. And so, been learning a lot about that. So when you look at the whole context of John chapter 15, are, what are the commands? You know, imperatives in the Bible, commands in the Bible. You look through the whole chapter, and there's only one command in everything Jesus said. The only command. He never says obey. That's not a command. He never says keep the commandments. That's never a command. The only imperative is abide. The only one. And so the context is where there's no abiding, there's no fruit. It doesn't have anything to do with trying hard. It doesn't have anything to do with performing right. It doesn't have to do with... It's, it's all abiding. Abiding on His Word. Abiding in His love. So if you think about it, the fruit, think about it, it's the life of Jesus back to the promise fulfillment in me being lived out through me. This is the promise of Romans 8, 29. Now you see that? It all fits together. It's all the same thing. It's whether we're reading the Gospels or the Epistles or whether you're, you're reading the book of Revelation or whether you're reading Genesis or whether you're reading Hosea. It's the same message. It all fits together. God has one consistent message for us. And He promises that all of His children are going to be conformed ultimately into the image of His Son. If you're saved, you will be justified. You will be glorified. But the question is, is that in this life, how much of the character of Christ will be exhibited in my life? How much of the character of Christ will be exhibited in your life? That's the question for you. That depends on abiding. The degree to which you abide in His love and upon His word will determine the degree to which his character, which is what the fruit is, will come through you. All of these traits are manifest. They're an outward expression of an inward reality, of an inward nature. That's all it is. So you take this, and what you do is you start asking yourself tomorrow, does God love me? Can God fail?
If you just invest your life in those two things, you're going to produce fruit like, and it will have nothing to do with you. You're going to produce fruit like every one of us was intended to do. It's the beauty of, this is the only room you've ever sat in or you, you ever sit in in your life where no one is better than anybody else. No one. No one has more potential than somebody else. What you've always longed for all of your life. You've made so many poor decisions because you wanted to be accepted. And you know what? And somehow you've missed this reality right here. Finally, here we are. Fully known, fully accepted. Everyone equal at the foot of the cross. There's no distinction. No distinction. Slave or free, Greek or Jew, no distinction. IQ doesn't matter. Heritage doesn't matter. Upbringing doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. Your economic standing doesn't matter. Think about it. Every one of us. I mean, it's just it's such a remarkable thing. Let's don't ever come in this room again and bring the values of the world in here. They don't belong in there. They don't belong in here. You can't live on me telling you what you are. You got to abide in it for yourself. But when you do, man, what a place the family of God is. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for these traits. We haven't spent 12 weeks.